Adam West still didn't seem like much of a fight, but I just listened. After all, I was writing a scene in which a robotic Walther PPK was fighting a semi-trailer truck, and they were the same size in the scene, so it wasn't like I had the logical high ground. Anyway, we worked out an elaborate scene. Batman had prepped the battlefield. He'd rigged bombs in a building. I didn't think bombs would hurt Superman, but I was told, they'll keep him busy. It was a good enough answer. We moved over to our scene. I said I wanted Optimus's death to feel like Davy Crockett's death in the John Wayne version of the Alamo. I'd seen that movie when I was five, and it became the centerpiece of my early childhood. Steve's friend hadn't seen the Alamo. Instead, the movie that inspired him the same way when he was a kid was called The 300 Spartans. And by now you've probably figured out that the guy was Frank Miller, and that the Batman comic book he was talking about was the fourth installment of The Dark Knight Returns. I've told this story a lot of times to a lot of people for a wide variety of reasons. Transformers fans love hearing about how Transformers the movie was created. I talk about it in lectures at the USC Film School because that scene is about something a lot bigger than Frank or Steve or I, or even Transformers and Batman. To me... It's about the incredible burst of creativity that happened in the 80s and in other golden, okay, or silver or platinum, ages. Uh, Full disclosure, uh, that uh, that movie from 1986 just might be my favorite movie. Wow. No joke. No joke. Because it's one of those things, you know, you're, you're sitting in a movie theater, seven years old, 1986. It just, it blew my mind in a way that nothing I had ever seen before. It's, um, yeah, it just, it just really resonated me in a big, bad way. And what I've found is as I keep going back to it year after year, I keep finding things, new, uh, new themes, new, uh, new ways of interpreting things that, you know, I, I didn't, when I was seven years old. It is shockingly deep and layered. And we can talk about that, you know, in the, in the show. I mean, what's funny about it is, but uh, is that same thing happens to me. Usually when I'm watching it, I'm watching it, you know, at a convention or, I mean, like in the different environments that I'm in, it's, it is a shockingly different film. (laughs) I've been waiting a long time for this. All dark, no shock. And now, from the Emerald City of Seattle, it's the Mike Seibert Radio Podcast. Your home for pop culture, Transformers, independent artists, interviews, Transformers, and stuff and things. Also, sometimes Transformers. And now, here he is, the man that's more than meets the eye, Mike Seibert. Hey, welcome back to Mike Seibert Radio, powered by Poddex. I am your host, and today my guest is Flint Dilly, author of The Games Master, My Life in the 80s Geek Culture Trenches with G.I. Joe, Dungeons & Dragons, and The Transformers. And while you might not immediately know his name, you certainly know his work and influence on some of the most iconic entertainment franchises in the world. Uh, For me personally, Uh, He's one of the authors of my childhood, and as story consultant, his voice helped shape a movie that's incredibly dear and important to me. It's a a little film that you might have heard of called The Transformers, the movie. Uh, We'll talk about that and more, as well as his work as a writer, story editor, showrunner, and producer, working with legends in the industry from uh, from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, all the way to Frank Miller and Jack Kirby, um, Gary Gygax, and why the 1980s were a true golden age of pop culture. Flint Dilley, welcome to Mike Cyber Radio. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Mike, I like that intro there. That's great. Now... Because of you, like everybody will know my name, right? I mean, yes, absolutely. Because yeah, right. because this this live stream is going to go viral, and oh, yeah, and yeah. it's it's just going to be everywhere. I think they have it like on every open speaker in America, like outdoors. You know, so anybody's outdoors is hearing it. Very cool. So um, so before we dig into the book and um, and and chat about Transformers and G.I. Joe and Visionaries and Inhumanoids and, and to say nothing about your gaming stuff, I mean, we, we could spend 
forever just saying, hey, who's Flint Dilly and what's up? But we want pe- folks to buy the book. So that's kind of what we're, uh, we're doing here. <laughs> but before, uh, before we get there, how's, uh, how's that uh, pandemic uh, quarantine life treating you down there? Oh, well, you know, what's funny is I, I'm sitting in Southern California and right now I got the windows open and now I got a helicopter. The window just closed. Um, the, I, live, I live in Westwood, like right next to the Ronald Reagan Hospital. So whatever helicopter, whatever somebody gets delivered, it comes. Uh, I, you know, I, I got to say, I'm not really bummed out about quarantine. I'm kind of liking quarantine. I've been very extraordinarily busy, so I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Okay. And what's, the other thing that's great about quarantine is yeah, everybody's quarantined. So yeah, I, I've had more like just good, you know, conversations in a lot of cases with people I hadn't talked to in years. Yeah, and a lot of them actually associated with the content we're talking about now because the book's coming out, and it's like figured. Oh, I gotta like round up the gang, and uh, and there we are. Awesome. So. I I first remember hearing of uh, you putting out a book. I want to say maybe it was 2018, uh, TFCon Chicago. Uh, you were doing a panel to close out uh, Friday night. It was uh, it was still this is still amongst my top convention going experiences. You did this uh, live commentary of uh, Five Faces of Darkness, which kind of kicked off a uh, season three of the Transformers and is kind of a, uh, a sequel of sorts to uh, Transformers the movie. But I, I remember there were a few times because like you would... Um, uh, you would we would watch a little bit and then you would pause and tell a lengthy lengthy story and then i mean i think it was over an hour and we had gone maybe like five minutes into the show most people didn't fall asleep because we went pretty late that night there was nobody i didn't didn't have to pick anybody up off the floor you know there was yeah i think that went late i mean we were like at two or three in the morning super late a couple friends of mine from high school over there who like you know hadn't seen me you know i mean you know maybe at reunions but like hadn't we hadn't hung out at all, you know, you know, since high school, but they yeah. they showed up, or you know, we were in touch and and had no idea what had happened to my life. And imagine how bizarre it is for, you know, you know, some high school buddy to like, you know, be seeing this room full of people watching, you know, the five faces of darkness till three in the morning. <laughs> and they stayed too. Uh, that that's awesome, and and I bring that up because there there were a couple times where you would drop these nuggets as you as you're telling these great stories and and stories that a lot of us as fans know already, you know, because we we've seen you at a number of conventions in the past. But you uh, you would say like, well, in my book that's coming out, and I uh, I remember I was there with a, a group of buddies of of mine and we all kind of like squeaked our sneakers and stopped and then it's like that scene out of the uh the original oceans 11 you know with uh, frank sinatra where everybody at the end just turns their head and looks towards the next person in line and and we were just um we were just really excited uh for well i hope the book lives up to it well, uh, from what I've read so far, um, I, uh, I now granted I didn't get very far because I just uh, just recently got an advanced copy. Thank you for that, by the way. That uh, that gave me an opportunity to kind of get a sneak peek of um, uh, what I'm in in store for. I, I just saw. I just it, it like suddenly appeared in my life. You know, well, you, it won't show up and yeah. you know, uh, it, it suddenly it's, appeared in my life. I you know because. You don't know. I mean, but with books coming out, it's weird. You know, about three, yeah. two months ago, I got a galley. The galley had all sorts of problems. It exists so that you can fix it. And and before that, you know, I, my wife had read through it and she was just fine. And, you know, like everything was wrong with it. So we spent, you know, a long time fixing it. Then I went back in with my editor, who was a great guy, Guy Antachi. And we went in and, uh, and re-edited it again. And by the time it actually comes out, I don't even know what's in it and what's not in it anymore. You know, it's like, it's exactly right in a movie. I mean, by the time it comes out, it's like, that's going to make it into the final or... Well, what I've, what I've found though is, so you've, um, um, it's billed as a narrative memoir. Right. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's from your perspective, uh, mostly chronological from, from what I can glean so far. And what I have found is that it, um, uh, you know, maybe I, I'm sure being a lifelong writer, you've kind of nailed your narrative voice, but it's, as I'm reading it, it, it sounds in my head 
as if I'm at a TFCon um, or some other type of fan convention just listening to you tell your stories. That's, that's one of my favorite things of seeing oh, you at cons is just hearing your stories. Oh, no, great. I, I hope I was able to convey that because it's a real different medium than when you're talking to people and, and when you're writing it down. Because when you're writing, you have lots of times to overthink yourself and double think you. And, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, yeah, I, my, my objective was not to like prove I was Leo Tolstoy or something. It was just to simply tell the story as, as well and, and, and completely as I could because it's very complex and it all kind of winds together. Yeah. Because I'd say the book's, you know, probably 50% sort of, you know, chronological memories of stuff. 25%, a lot of it's about writing and a lot of it is about uh, just the, the age. You know, I, I got really interested in the idea of a golden age because that's how I felt about that period. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's jump off from there. What is kind of, what, what was the original uh, inspiration for uh, wanting to, one, write a uh, narrative memoir and then um, why now? Uh, more than oh. anything, what 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 was the kind of inciting incident for that? Well, I mean, I, it, well, I mean, what had happened was this: was I'd been doing interviews, you know, ranging from doing the commentary on the DVDs to a lot of print interviews about all these topics. Remember, Transformers was just one of them. Yeah. I'd have people coming over and interviewing me about about TSR and Gary Gygax and D and D and all that. Then I'd have people wanting to talk to me about GI Joe because. I think I'm one of the few people that's on both the G.I. Joe and Transformer version of Toys That Made Us. And I probably could have ended up on the D&D version of it, too. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and so what I would do is a lot of times, even when you're doing an audio interview, like you and I are just doing this fresh, mm-hmm. but when you're doing an audio interview, you know, people would send you lists of questions. And you'd answer, you know, I'd answer them in text. And I'd just keep dragging these files into a Google Doc. I suddenly discovered I had like 150 pages and, and people were showing up on Facebook asking about this stuff. I realized, and I go to all these conventions, I realized people really want to talk about this and what I had to do rather than, you know, cause the thing you're always afraid of is, is, well, there's a story in there. It was Frank Miller and I sitting at Comic-Con yeah. and there was some bitter drunk guy in the bar at the Westgate hotel. I mean, it was probably a famous comic book artist, but uh, you know, talking about, you know, oh, I got screwed back in the whatever. I'll tell you what the real story went. And Frank and I were talking about how Gornish that look. You know, we just thought, you know, God, I hope I'm never that guy. And I asked Frank, I said, well, does that mean you can never talk about, about the past? And Frank said, he didn't miss a beat. He said, no, you can when somebody asks. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> all a right. brilliant answer. And I felt, okay, there are all these I love interviews. That. And there are, people are asking me all the time on Facebook, so I figured I'm going to tell tell this one time, and then I'll never have to tell it again. Of course, when you come out with a book, then you're telling half the stuff again 500 times anyway. But I, I, I wasn't thinking that far ahead because I've never written something like this. I mean, most of what I write tends to be fictional. Um, and uh, so, so that was really it. I just decided, you know, I'm, I, I, yeah, I'll just. I was, I was sitting in an apartment in Paris and, you know, it was, it was kind of, I, I think I was answering one of the questionnaires. And I thought, all right, what, if I were to make this book, what would I do? And mm-hmm. then I'd audition all the chapters on Facebook and let people read them and make comments and stuff like that. And then, yeah, not all of them, but I mean, to a point I did. And so I'd figure out what people were interested in and what they didn't want to hear about. And most of the, I mean, when you're reading the book, you can read it from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Or you can read for what you're interested in. My goal is to, you know, let you you read what you're interested in, but get in, get interested in things you didn't know you were interested because in, it covers a very wide swath of stuff. Yeah, that's uh for for me as a fan, that's what I'm especially interested in because, like, you know, I uh, a lot of the stories, especially related with uh, with Transformers, I I've heard a lot. Um, so I I'm excited to revisit those. But there's there's so much else that I mean, like a lot of uh, your gaming stuff, a lot of your your stuff with uh, interactive uh, interactive books, um, a lot of that stuff that that history that I just don't know about. So it's uh, it's it's really exciting to get into that multi leveled history. Yeah, that, that was the idea because I mean it was just a hell of a ride. I mean you know going from basically just getting out of film school to writing real movies, but, you know, I've worked on four TV shows and 
I mean, it was just it was just a really great era. And that's not to say it was necessarily that much better than the one that followed it. But there's something about the 80s that's speaking to people right now. I mean, even my kids, you know, my mm-hmm. daughter's 21, or I'm sorry, 19, and my son's 21. And, and you know, I, they like that. Music from that period probably is, you know, happily as they'll listen to music from now. You know, neither of them was particularly geeks for this stuff because, you know, it's like I'm not, you know, giving my son, you know, Transformer toys and making him play with them, you know. Right. But, you know, um, but, uh, but it, I, I think the era really spoke to him and it was a – it was a time when it was really fun to be young and, and like anything was possible. And every time he turned around, there was some new magic uh, electronic device coming out and everybody's getting their first word processor, but, but the world was still analog. You know, I, I, it was yeah. a great, just a great period. It was like kind of the best, you know, of, of what came before and what came afterwards. Gotcha. Um, so the book is The Games Master, uh, My Life in the 80s Geek Culture, uh, in the 80s Geek Culture Trenches with G.I. Joe, Dungeons and Dragons, and the Transformers. That, that, okay. is, a, that is a mouthful, the actual by the way. cover, the subtitle is Almost Famous in the Geek 80s. Okay, that, very that, good. That title you have, I don't know where that came from. That is marketing for Amazon or something. I, you know, I, ah. that, but that's not what it says on the cover of the book because I wanted something. Because it, my life was kind of like Almost Famous. So, you know, every time I turned around, I was there. You see, it says Almost Famous. I don't know what the culture trench is. Almost Famous in the Geek 80s, right there on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. So I, that's that, how that I will refer to it going forward. Yeah, that one, you get the signed copy. And I yes. just like it because Amazon doesn't like to talk about the fact that you can actually buy a book. Um, you, know, you know, you can actually buy a book on, on paper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like giving the publisher and the little guys, you know, the, the stuff. It's not like Amazon's going to go bankrupt this week. <laughs> However, that having been said, the audiobook is now out on Amazon and it's fabulous. Yes, I yes, strange experience listening to somebody read your life story and it's not your voice. How does that come to be with uh you know it gets transcribed into an audiobook through Audible uh the uh, uh the narrator by the way is someone named Eric Michael Summoner. Uh, he uh, he does Summer. a fabulous job. He's a he's a a big um um audiobook guy and okay. uh and my publisher, because, you know, originally it started out, I wanted to do it, right? Sure. And, you know, and I realize, especially when listening to this guy, that it's one thing to write a book and it's one thing to, to be able to talk. It's quite a different thing than to do an audio book. And, yeah. uh, and, I mean, this guy's just got a great voice. He's mm-hmm. got, you know, he, and it's really funny to see how he phrases stuff. Because a lot of it's like better than it was phrased in my mind. Okay. I mean, it's it's just a very it was a really, it's been a really kind of fun surreal experience. But um, he did a fabulous job, and and that is a very good way to experience the book. To be honest with you. Yeah, I've I've honestly been doing a little bit of both. I I downloaded it on Audible. I've been listening to it on my commute, and then what I do is I've gone home and then started reading from where the narration left off, and then bounced back and forth. I think that's so, a new way to do a book. I've been doing that a lot on stuff lately too, and I kind of like it. It's it's kind of neat, and it adds just kind of like a a, a different fun texture to it. But yeah. again, his his narration is fantastic because it, it really conveys your conversational style you know it's it's the next best thing to uh to narrating it yourself well, it's better because i'd be stumbling over my words and you know mispronouncing things and rewriting stuff on the fly i mean he actually reads the book gotcha yeah um so as we said, uh, that audio version is available now. Uh, you can get that on Amazon. It clocks in at a whopping 12 hours and 49 minutes worth of audio there. Um, so I didn't even know I had 12 hours and 49 minutes worth of thought. You know, I, I mean, it, it surprised me that it came out there because I was worried about it being too short. Sure. Yeah. Well, the book clocks in what just over three hundred pages, like three hundred and thirty, I think. Yeah, it's it's like three hundred and thirty, and it's like real pages. It's not some phony big type. It's uh, well, let's see. I don't know. I'm on the I'm on the appendix here. So without appendix, we're at 
Uh, yeah, 327 pages. Nice. Very cool. Um, so from there, since, since we are talking about the book and um, your uh, partnership with Rare Bird Books, um, how, um, how does that come to be? Did they, did they approach you? Uh, were you looking for a publishing a lot partner? Of, how, a lot of that things happen? happened simultaneously. And a lot of people deserve credit. It was all just a puzzle that was put together. But I just decided, because yeah, like I didn't have a book agent, I hadn't really written a book in a long time, you know, and, um, and, and I was writing it and I was getting a lot of, you know, likes and people encouraging me and asking further questions. And I was just, and, and at this point, I wasn't entirely sure I was writing a book. I was just toying with the idea. Yeah. Because you just got to have that, that kind of project, right? And so uh, um, I, I posted on Facebook, anybody know an agent that I could sell this book? How should I sell this? I really did that. Because <laughs> yeah, I just wanted I just wanted to, you know, it's just kind of a social media experiment, right? Because this whole book is. And I mean, what are we on right now? You know? And, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so an uh, uh, um, old friend of mine who was quoted extensively in the book, Harriet Beck, said, oh, you ought to talk to Stuart Miller, okay? And Stuart Miller is an agent who I'd known, uh, you know, only vaguely. I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't know if he remembered me or he faked like he did, but I certainly didn't really know him, but like from back in the day, from you know, the other period. And so I contacted Stuart and he just, you know, slapped me upside the head a bunch of times and, you know, said, okay, you got to have, here's how it's got to work. You're, you're a grabber, your premise for the book, what it's about, a synopsis. They got to have an outline, then they give us 60 pages, uh, then give us a marketing, you know, the similar books and, and give us who you think the audience is and how you plan on promoting it. And yeah, I mean, it was like, it was rigorous, right? Yeah. And that's, that is, Stuart was great. Okay. Meanwhile, on a parallel track, cause that's the way the world works. Yep. I, I've, I'm pretty nonlinear and my life's pretty nonlinear. A friend of mine, Dan Vining, had published a book with with Rare Bird, um, and uh, and Dan's done a lot of books. I mean, he writes like really great stuff, and and so it's like, oh, good, there's a real writer, you know, that published with this publishing company, and so Dan recommended me to them, and um, uh, and and to Rare Bird. So some combination of Stewart and Dan, and we got the proposal over. And they said, we'll go with it. That sounds really great. And, you know, it's a small publishing house. It's not like, you know, but the great thing is they're still there, you know. And yeah, it was great about Rare Bird. We set up a meeting and they said they wanted to do it. And we set up a meeting, right? And, and I went over there and it's right next to, this will be lost to anybody not from L.A., but if you can ever go out in the world again, it's worth seeing. Okay. Um, they're right next to a place called The Last Bookstore in downtown L.A. And, uh, you know, right now the area looks like it's been, doing, they've been doing a lot of weapon testing and stuff there. But I mean, it's a really cool old area of LA. Uh, and so, you, got, you know, it's right next to the glass bookstore. And I went upstairs and I felt like I was in a film noir. I mean, if you told me they shot double indemnity up in that sure. in the, you know, office where I was, I believe you. And, I, and it was just great. And then, you know, I went and I went to Tyson Cornell, who's the publisher. And he was great. You know, I mean, he was like, you know, sort of totally modern guy. And you're in there and I feel like, oh, I'm a kind of a publishing, you know, cutting edge publishing house. I like this. Because, uh, you know, you've got to put something cool on top of this book or it just ends up being another, you know, oh, yeah, I worked on a thing back and, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so they, they had a lot of, and Guy Antachi, who was the editor, was there and Stuart was there. And, and we had this kind of, uh, <laughs> it was just a real L.A. noir meeting. It was the only way okay. I and I said, okay, I'm in the right place. Let's do it. And so, you know, that it, we just went from there. And I got Livio Ramondelli, who did uh, uh, Transformer uh, graphic novel series with Chris Metzen and I, called Autocracy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's a very modern artist for Transformers. And so Livio did the cover, and uh, and and we're off and running. 
Awesome. I, I was going to ask Sorry, you about that. Really long answer to a short question. No, that's fine. I, you know, honestly, and I, I was talking to some of my friends about this in, in preparation for this interview. They're, they were asking me about my prep and the questions I was going to have. I'm like, you know, I'm going to spend the majority of the conversation just staying out of the way. <laughs> so it's like, you know, throw a softball and just let it roll. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Levio's work. And when I, uh, uh, when I saw the cover, I, it looks like his work, but it was one of those things where I, I was, I was almost too bashful to ask him about it. Um, because it's like, I think that's yours, but I don't want to guess wrong and offend you. Um, that kind of thing. So I'm, uh, Olivia, Olivia is great. Okay. Let's just talk about Olivia first. Yeah, please. Okay. Start here. He's like the nicest guy in the world. He's incredibly smart. He's young. He's aggressive. He's always doing something, right? He, yeah, I mean, any, anybody who can work with Chris Metzen and I, you know, ought to get a Purple Heart anyway, <laughs> or a Bronze Star or something. Yeah. Um, he was perfect. Okay. He is also, if you read his new book, and I, I, I forget the title of it. The but Kill Lock. Yes. He and, is and it, and it's really phenomenal. Good I mean, as a matter of fact, it was really depressing how good a writer he was because, yeah. like, you won't want to do anything with me again. But, no, Livio is fantastic. I mean, he is the definitive guy right now. And what he decided, okay, the picture, tell me if this gets really boring. I mean, we can go on to other stuff. The picture is a shot that was actually taken, is the only studio shot taken on me in that period. And so we, I was, a, a, a girlfriend was kind of standing right next to me, so, we, you know, we, like, you know, chopped her out of it. And, okay. uh and then we stuck it in, and Livio said, well, you always wear the sport coat and the shirt, so, you know, we're going to do that. Uh, and that uh, sounds good. And we ended up with this weird uh, with, with this weird thing. And what's funny is, I think it was Tyson, somebody yesterday said, should have just had your son pose for it, because I mean, it looks more like him than me. That's the other kind of funny thing about it. Oh, that's funny because yeah, it does have that uh, that that distinctive iconic Flint Dilly look with the. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, Livio picked it up, you know, and you never know what people pick up from you. Said, "Oh yeah, I got to put you in the sport coat and the shirt." Yeah, that's... so I'm not wearing a sport coat today. I'm in particularly <laughs> degenerate mode, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, again, we're we're in pandemic quarantine mode, so it's uh... yeah, we're in quarantine mode. There's an excuse. I don't <laughs> there know it is. It's uh, it's all good. Um, so yeah, so we, we were talking about, uh, Livio and, uh, he's, uh, he's been on my show before to talk about the kill lock, which I believe just recently wrapped up. I think the last issue is finally on the stands. Um, IDW got their, their shipping all squared away. So, um, if, uh, if folks have not picked that up yet, stop what you're doing and go out and get it. Cause it is, it, it yeah, is no, phenomenal. It's, fabulous. It, it's fabulous. And I'm trying to leave you on are trying to do something else. And you know, I just hope you'll still, you know, want to want to be around cause boy, he's really grown. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean really in a lot of ways. And, and I mean this well of both guys being around him. They're very different personalities, but it's the energy is like being with the young Frank. I mean, they're, they're almost the same guy. Oh, could you expand on that? Tell me more. Well, I mean, they're, they're both guys that are just right there and really into what they're doing and all that stuff. You know, I mean, very different expressions and personalities. Though. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Frank was always, you know, much more, you know, kind of cerebral and, and you know, and all that, you know. And also, too, you know, I was young at that point, too, you know, so it was right. you know, kind of a different right. thing. But, I mean, you know, it's a lot of – and, and – he he's just incredibly disciplined. Uh, we worked with him on an ingress graphic novel. Worked with him, as I said, on the whole autocracy, uh, um, primacy, monstrosity trilogy, and that was like yeah. four hundred pages. You know, I, I mean, it was one of these things where Chris and I were working on a game called Diablo Three. I know I'm not supposed to talk about anything past the '80s. We won't do this anymore. But we're going <laughs> to a game called Diablo Three, and Chris turned around and said, "Hey." Uh, you want to do a Transformers graphic novel? And I thought, yeah, I haven't done Transformers. I've done a few Transformer games since the day. I did the first Bay game and mm -hmm. a couple other ones that didn't ship. They were really actually promising. And uh, But it was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's Chris. Okay, I'll do that. And 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 I can't remember what Chris knew about Livio. Or, no, 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 it was IDW. Uh, I, think, I, I think it was John Barber, but I'm not sure. But one of the uh, uh, editors at IDW introduced us to Livio at Comic-Con. Oh, okay. And I looked at his stuff and I said, oh, this guy's perfect. But he's also just got the perfect attitude. And, uh, um, 
Yeah, I can't say enough good stuff about him. Yeah, it's great, you know, and I, I love the fact that he's growing, you know, growing himself and doing, you know, doing uh, his own books, too. The similarity is the passion and the energy. I mean, he just loves what he's doing. He's not one of these people, I can say, this is safe to say, he's not somebody who wants to be doing something else, like, yeah, I'm doing these comics, but I really want to be doing movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, he, 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 I think he just loves being Livio, you know, and, and that's, that's really refreshing. He's almost kind of like an 80s character who just like is in the wrong decade. I got you. Missed last week's episode? Have trouble remembering that hot take you heard? Find it all in the full archive on SoundCloud.com by searching Mike Seibert Radio. Let me see. Because, uh, I mean, there, there's there's a million different places we can go. And I want to make sure that we're uh, economical with our time. Um, more than anything, and this is probably self-indulgence uh, more than anything, but Flint Dilly, tell me a story about your portion of creating Transformers the movie. Boy, there are about 50 of them. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and you don't have to tell me all of them. I'm, I'm just... Right, uh, which ones haven't I told you? Okay, you told the basic stuff because, well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the, the outline, okay? And you could feel free to hit that fast forward or pause or, you know, rewind or something like that yeah. anywhere in this. But I, I'd only vague, I, you know, I started out on G.I. Joe. I was very happy being, you know, associate producer on G.I. Joe and, you know, and doing story editor and all and writing them. And I, G.I. Joe was always easy. But Joe and Tom said, okay, we're moving you over to Transformers. And, you know, I moved over to Transformers and Transformers was never easy. I liked it and I'm really proud of it. I kind of loved it, but it, Transformers was just hard. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. But anyway, so, I'd vaguely heard there was going to be a movie. Well, I didn't really, this is 1984, 85, whatever year this was, 85. I didn't really believe there's going to be a Transformer movie, okay? Animated movies were extremely rare. And, and I always thought, you know, you could actually project a lot of the episodes onto a big screen, and if you clean up all the shots, it would look pretty darn good, yeah. okay? And we got in the first draft of the script and Ron Friedman wrote, it was a brilliant piece of work and it was this warehouse of images and ideas. And I don't know if you've talked to Ron, but I mean, you talk about a guy with, you know, extraordinary amounts of energy. And he, yeah, I mean, he, he comes at everything like, you know, like a, I don't know, like some, you know, outside linebacker on an edge blitz or something like that. There I don't you know go. What he looks like, but I mean, that's, that's what he's like. I mean, he, he's just right there and right at it. But he was doing a script where he probably had 10 people giving him input. And it's like, oh, yeah, we've got 43 new characters. we got to discontinue 20 characters. And, and so the whole thing was, you know, Jay and I shaping it. And Jay and I sat down and wrote a draft, which was, it was, it was not – it's not like we tossed out Ron's draft at all. That would be totally untrue. We, right. we, we used a lot of it. But we were trying to streamline it into a very simple story that it, we could tell you could tell somebody in, in, you know, 30 seconds. And so we wrote a draft uh, called The Secret of Cybertron. And we wrote it in a week. And uh, Jay was living on my couch. And you'll see in the book, I always had someone on my couch. And Jay, you know, because, you know, it's just, it was just easier because we were working around the clock because we had to write a script in a week. And we came out with that draft. And, and I, I think, I don't know about Jay, but I was absolutely convinced that that this was the best script ever written by anybody for any reason, you know, and, and you know, this would be in the Smithsonian. Well, nobody else shared my enthusiasm. And, uh, uh, however, parts of Secret of Cybertron kept sneaking back into the script. And oddly enough, not from me, you know, you know, kind of from everyone else. But uh, the story, oh, there, there was one period that was pretty funny is, um, I can't tell. Uh, I, I, I got to figure out how to tell that. that. Sure. Well, okay, you'll see in the book. What I tried to do in the book is I don't say anything embarrassing or bad about anybody. Okay, you know, and I don't know if it's embarrassing or bad. Um, let me say it was really, what was really fun was this one period where, where I was in New York rewriting the script and, you know, I'm sitting in the Swank Hotel. It was oddly enough, it was Donald Trump's first hotel. I think it was the Grand Hyatt. Okay. Uh, it was right next to the Sunbow offices. And at that moment, uh, Griffin McCall was the fastest growing ad agency in Manhattan. So all of a sudden, you're, you're living in just this world. I mean, it was, it was like Tom, uh, Tom and Joe were like, they would have been the young guys in the room and Mad Men. 
Okay, Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall. Yeah. And they, you know, I mean, they, these guys are were fabulous. Just great guys. You know, Joe just passed last year. Tom's still very much around and with us. And these are these are two of my heroes. And and same thing with Jay. I mean, that's the thing I I gotta I gotta say is how strong the creative team. The embarrass I'll tell you, I'll tell you an embarrassing story. All right. That yeah. was I was I was like, you know, such a prima donna and was having, you know, such a tantrum after after they were less than just totally accepting of what of uh, Secret of Cybertron, that I was just like in a snit for a seventy-two hour meeting. There were breaks in it, but I mean, it was basically an entire weekend in the office in Westwood. And all I remember is lying on my back smoking cigarettes the whole time. You know, just being a, a complete pain in the butt. However, they didn't do the smart thing and fire me, and we we got through it. I, I stayed with that script. I think I wrote probably 22 drafts of it oh my gosh yeah so there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, a lot of ups and downs and nooks you know some of the drafts were pretty minor you know it's like we would find out who we yeah you know we oh we cast orson wells for unicron okay so we'll re- do the orson wells rewrite uh, you know you, you know we have leonard nimoy okay oh yeah okay we know how to do that you know, you know it was stuff like that interesting um I was already excited to check it out in the book, but now it seems like there's there's a lot of treasure there that uh, that I um, that that'll be fun for fans uh, to discover because there's there there's we were talking about this a little bit in in pre-show before we went live. Um, there there's just something special about that movie that it's um, it, it it crystallizes everything that's awesome about the 80s you know between like the high concept animation the the prog rock soundtrack the celebrity stunt voice casting it's it was something that you know i i um i was seven years old when i saw the the movie and i was sitting there you know seven years old i got my red vines i got my dr pepper and it just blew me away um just blew my hair back in a way that seeing something on that scale hadn't before and i had seen star wars i mean like you know with Return of the Jedi had just come out a couple years before that and that captured my imagination and it was you know a tremendous film going experience but this was something I think maybe it was because I was already a fan of the Transformers and had the toys and was invested in the characters but it was something that just uh, again just just made me gobstruck in a way that no other cinematic experience had been at the tender age of seven but um but it it's still the meter stick that i use for a uh tv show to movie progression adaptation things like that i mean you know we've seen star trek do it and other things like that and my response is almost uniformly yeah it's fine but it's no transformers the movie because nothing before or since really moved the needle in a, in a way that we had seen like that before. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, how do I respond to that? But that, that's fabulous, you know. Uh, I, I, what I will tell you is, and we, we, we touched on this briefly, but I had more thoughts about it, you know, before the show. But mm-hmm. um, every time I've seen it since then, it's been a little bit different. You know, because as I said, I, I don't like to sit down and say, I'm going to go watch Transformers the movie. Yeah. I mean, that's, just, that's really narcissistic. But... Um, yeah, you know, I've done it at a lot of conventions, and you know, it's gotten to be a thing where people want to watch it, and I'm sitting there with the remote control unit and telling stories and all that. Which, by the way, was pure research for the book. You know, it was right. You know, what do people ask about? What do they want to hear about? When do I see people nodding off? You know, and stuff like that. Anyway, and I remember one time I went to saw it over at uh, I'm trying to remember the Cinegrill, which was basically. Imagine if you took a Hollywood bar, a disco, and a theater, and you know, compress them all into one room. You know, you had booths and, and you know, I mean, it would be like watching a movie in Las Vegas or something. Sure. Um, and and that time in that context, I was struck by you know the Stan Bush Vince DiCola soundtrack, and I realized how '80s that was. You listen to that soundtrack, and you know, Ronald Reagan's still president. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's you know, MTV is a brand new thing. You know, and Miami Vice is still on the air. You know, I mean, you listen to that soundtrack and it brings back, you know, the, the you know, Stan Bush and the power ballads and the touch and all that. And then, and Vince DiCola, who I never realized how prog rock he was 
because you know, I, I was just raised on it. So like, you know, I was, I was used to yes. And, you know, and, sure. And elements like at Palmer and, and Asia and, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, that was, that was like second nature to me. And, and I didn't realize, Oh, I did a movie that has a prog rock soundtrack. And it was just kind of, it was one of those nights where everybody was having a really good time. And I mean, it sort of, it was, it was sort of like it was one of these big, happy, drunken nights, except nobody was drunk. You know, it was one of those nights. So that's how the Transformer movie looked that night. It looked like a party movie. Then another time I went to see it at the Egyptian theater. They had a screening. Um, and uh, and it was a much more kind of a, a cinematic experience where they sure. had a panel ahead of time and we sounded you know, very intellectual talking about, you know, t- talking robot movie, right? <laughs> and, you know, but, I mean, it was very artiste. And, and so we're sitting there, I'm sitting there watching it and I'm struck by what Nelson stuff did. And it, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Nelson Shin, the director. Okay. Nelson, what an epic guy that is. He is. And I didn't realize how many decisions he made that were just like 3 trillion percent. Right. I mean, who figures out that, how do you show a giant robot died? Well, make him go in black and white. I mean, who thinks of that? You just, if you look at nothing but what Nelson did with color, and then go take a look at the scenes inside a Unicron. Mm-hmm. And if that were not a Transformer movie and you weren't hearing, you know, Chris Lotta, you weren't hearing any of that stuff and Orson Will, you weren't hearing any of that stuff, that would be an art film. I mean, just look at the images. You know, that would be an experimental avant-garde study in color and technology and and living, you know, I mean, yeah. I did feel like an intellectual that time I was watching. That's what I'm saying. Every time I watch it, I see some scene, and it may have been, you know, some scene I wrote, but just seeing it, you know, it kind of like, you know, strikes me. It's, you know, you know kind of like, you know, wow, yeah, I didn't see that coming. I, I mean, it was a very, it was a really interesting movie, and probably was, yeah, we had Star Wars, but that was already a long time ago. But the intrinsic challenge of the movie that we had 134 speaking characters in that, and all of them were products. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And you know, not to mention the fact we were killing characters off, which yeah, I could argue. I mean, I would argue we wouldn't be having this conversation if we haven't. And I believe that argument. Yeah. The absolutely. other side of it, as I realized, we kind of violated our contract with people, and that the thing that was great about a lot of those '80s shows, you know, by Transformers and Joe is we could do very violent stuff, but nobody actually died. Mm-hmm. You, you know you're, it was safe. It was a safe experience. Even in Humanoids, which is about as dark and violent and nasty as you could go in those days, nobody like actually died in there. And then the movie you know, shocked people because we sort of broke our contract. And as I said, I can argue either way, and I think in the end, it was the best thing for the franchise. Mm-hmm. But I understand the other side of the argument too. Yeah, I uh, a, a couple a couple quick places I want to go with that. One, I I think it's the part of what makes it so lasting is that it it does play for keeps. You know, it's like those those uh, those Fulios on the shuttle are not coming back. You know that that kind of thing. And and I I just remember. Um, you know, a lot of folks point to the death of Optimus Prime as kind of like a, a iconic moment. It was iconic for me as well, but I had already seen Wrath of Khan also. So right. like, I, I was already kind of accustomed to the uh, perspective of heroic death and sacrificing for your friends. Even, even at seven years old, I, I could still kind of appreciate and understand uh, the, the morality of that. I think uh, some of the other um, uh, violence is, 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 I think, more striking to me than, um, than that. And that actually kind of brings me to a uh, question I got from one of my buddies, uh, uh, Stan Cho, who's a, um, a pixelated uh, Transformers artist, who's going to be a guest on my uh, podcast soon. Oh, but he, uh, he just, uh, he just wrote to me and says, like, I, I have a question. Uh, can you ask Flint uh, to describe the quote unquote gauntlet scene that was cut from Transformers the movie? I want to hear exactly how he wrote the deaths of the other 84 line autobots. <laughs> okay. I would really appreciate if you could do this. That was okay. That was the big scene. Yeah. That was the big scene in, in um, Secret of Cybertron. Okay, the premise of the Secret of Cybertron, and someday I hope to find a copy of that script. 
Um, you know, he's turned up like here's I just found in my closet a while back. The, that is the first two episodes of the second season of Inhumanoids that never. Had. Oh, wow. So oh, there, cool. there are weird anomalies in my closet somewhere. Um, okay. Here's how I remember it. What we, you know, we discover, we decided that, okay, we've got to, you know, we're discontinuing the 84 product line and we're doing the 85 product line. This is Jay and I. Mm -hmm. And um, we uh, decided, well, let's have a really magnificent, it's like the charge of the light brigade or the Alamo or something. Because, and you'll see in the beginning of the book, I mean, I always saw the Optimus's death as being Davy Crockett, you know, John Wayne's death in, in the Alamo, in his version of the Alamo. And uh, that was the whole discussion with Frank. And you're saying, did you ever see the 300 Spartans? Um, you know, and uh, um, so, so it said, yeah, this ought to just be, this is this valiant death and they're all going to get killed. and They're all going to sacrifice. Because the premise was that what the Autobot Matrix really did was it was a key. And okay. when you got to the heart of Cybertron, you could, you could awaken Cybertron and it transformed and it was the only thing that could defeat Unicron. So literally, there's a battle between these two planet-sized giants who are brothers, which oddly enough, channeled into later comic book interpretations. But basically what it was, yeah, yeah. you know, is just think of it as you're making a dead run to the center of the planet, right? And, the, you know, you, you've blown open a shaft and the Decepticons are trying to defend it and the Autobots are trying to attack it. And it's just this mass charge. Everybody's pick, getting picked off and one guy gets in there. It's very kind of Star Wars, really. Oh, I mean, so, so we didn't think about it. Our model was the Charge of the Light Brigade. So this was going to be at the end of the movie, not not at the beginning. No. Uh, interesting. No, that was not exactly the end of the movie because it didn't entirely work for him. And so the new characters had to go in and fix it. Got it. Okay. It had that's... to be finished off. And that's where we're like Rodimus, you know, Hot Rod at the time. Mm -hmm. Hot Rod. And, and I think Ultra Magnus is already dead at that point. But, you know, Hot Rod and Cup and, you know, the new characters go in. And literally pick up the torch, pick up the matrix from where the old characters had failed and finished the job. And that was the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Wow. As I said, I thought that was a really cool idea. Nobody else did. But no, Jay, <laughs> Jay did. He, we thought it was a cool idea. I, I'm not going to lie. I really dig that. I, <laughs> well, that would be a great thing to do sometime as a comic. Mm -hmm. like an alt version of an episode or something, you know, it'd just be kind of a cool thing to do. Cause it really is this moment. Cause I always thought of Cybertron as being alive and robotic. You, I mean, you would imagine all these things come from a planet that mm -hmm. itself can transform. And I'd always, I'd always bought every version of the origin story. And I figured the Quintessons just designed this giant robot that would build itself as a planet and then build everything else that's on it. And then, curl up in a ball but they wanted the they wanted the key for that lock because they didn't want that thing to suddenly appear gotcha. but there was the prototype or there was the one that wasn't supposed to exist and that was unicron that was my theory about it because i just want to see these two you know planet-sized you know you know robots fighting with each other with ships flying around things exploding and all that that's uh, that that's wildly fascinating and it's interesting how elements of that kind of ended up being part of the fiction later, you know, where, where, you know, they, they would have Cybertron as, you know, the, the body of Primus and be an opposite uh, number of Unicron. So it's, it's interesting how those elements kind of get picked up and used. Uh, well, I, I mean, my, my feeling is, is I, I don't, I mean, very few people ever saw the secret of Cybertron. Sure. I mean, I think the distribution list was probably Jamie, yeah, probably Doug Booth, uh, Roger Slifer, Joe and Tom, Jay, Carol Weitzman, and Hilde Mesnick. And that was anybody that ever had it. Uh, and uh, um, it, it is more likely that I have it stashed away somewhere because if, if Joe or Tom had it, it would have turned up by now. And you know, those things are pretty disposable. So I, I, I hope there's some box in the closet. Oh, you can't see it because I'm my silly Batman. You know, some right. box in there that, that has it. Very cool. Well, um, uh, the the next thing I want I wanted to ask you about, and we'll uh, we'll probably end up uh, getting close to closing out on this. Um, we wanted to uh, revisit and talk more about Five Faces of Darkness because that's basically uh, the we started the conversation with that, and it's the sequel um, of sorts to Transformers the movie. Again, we are talking to Flint Dilly. Um, the book is the Games Master, almost famous in the geek eighty 
Diabetes. Uh, it is available in audiobook form right now on Amazon and Audible. You can go check it out there. Um, you can also uh, pre-order a autographed copy through Rare Bird Books. Um, there's a there's a link in the live stream. You can click on that as well. Um, that uh, and that comes out in hard copies on July 14th. Um, so you'll be able to hear expansive versions of some of these uh, stories that we're talking about and so much, so much more that we won't uh, have the opportunity to touch on. Like I, uh, like for example, I had a, uh, um, a buddy of mine, I, you know, I was just, you know, doing Facebook posting saying like, hey, I'm talking to Flint Dilly about the book. It's so awesome. And uh, my buddy Andrew, he writes me, he's like, what books did he write in the 80s? And I'm like, I, uh, I don't think he wrote so many books. It was mostly like cartoons and games. I mean, you know, yeah, gaming and video games and all that stuff is so much uh, part of your history where we're talking mostly about Transformers. But um, I, I guess uh, uh, very uh, uh, quickly before uh, before we pivot to Five Faces and uh, close out, um, any anything you wanted to touch on with regards to, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just realizing that I'm snapping open a too large of a can of worms, but I, I'll try to get in under a minute. You mean all the other stuff in the book that's not Transformers? Because all the Transformers stuff is there. You know, all the hits are there with Transformers. You'll see all that. Though uh, your friend asked a really interesting question about the final assault. You know, and I'm I'm just reconstructing because remember I haven't seen the script in 35 years. Right. I'd love to reconstruct it for a graphic novel or something. But anyway. Um, Okay, with, with the rest of the book, it's really, it's, it's about four years of going from getting out of film school, I went to USC, and it's, it's this whole journey for working, on, working at Ruby Spears, meeting Jack Kirby, I mean, it's a bunch of people, I mean, I, I just, that's why I was calling it almost famous, it's like I'm hanging around these epic characters, I mean, you know, and you went through a number of them at the beginning of the show, yeah. but there is all these epic characters, and they were just great projects, and the books they were kind of forgotten is Gary and I wrote four, you basically fight a path adventures, pick a path adventures are really big. Then we uh, did the Sagard books, which you can see I'm sitting here. I have a four sided die in my hand. Uh, I'm playing through the Sagard books because I'm trying to figure out how to re-release them on a pad format. Okay. And, uh, and, and they're really good. I mean, I'm playing through them and I, I, I you know, I'm enjoying them. Now, granted it's me, but nevertheless, I'm enjoying them. Uh, then there were the Agent 13 books that Dave Marconi and I wrote, which, uh, you know, have as recently as like two years ago were in development. I think they maybe ended up being back in development. And, uh, uh, you know, as uh, there was Charlie's Theron over Universal and they went they went through a lot of writers and scripts and we're, we're trying to make that one. You know, they get Agent 13 as movie. But Dave and I wrote those then. Oh Dave gosh. later went on to write Enemy of the State and Live Free or Die Hard. And, you know, and just the, wrote The Foreigner last year and has a movie coming out this year. I mean, did a lot of stuff. So that was another thing. Then then there's kind of a funny story about doing my first interactive laser disc game um, <laughs> with two supermodels in a bar and, you know, and, and, uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut, one of whom ended up being the editor of the third Agent 13 book, Patty Detterman. Uh, and then uh, what else is in there? And it finally ends up, you know, when, when you know, Sunbow kind of dies and I go and do Garbage Pail Kids. Uh -huh. There's some great disasters in there. You get to, you know, George Lucas is in there. You know, the yeah, Garbage Pail Kids is in there. Uh, and then it ends up with when yeah, I go to the right party on the right night and end up... Uh, um, uh, getting end up wearing a Steven Spielberg movie, and you know and that's like you know, and and now here's the kicker on that. If you look at the people who, this is what's not evident to you, but the people who wrote the blurbs, it's a fascinating collection of pillar. I mean, Frank Miller wrote one, you know, because I mean he he and I hung out through almost all that period. Linda Wolverton, who when I was my girlfriend at that moment, went on to write Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and and all that. She's got an interesting blurb in the back. Paul Dini, who basically has defined Batman, you yeah. know, for animation for and created Harley Quinn. And we're still doing it. I mean, I was talking to Paul for an hour and a half yesterday trying to figure Oh, that's another thing. We Paul and I found a thing we wrote in the day that we're gonna figure out how to develop as a comic book. It's uh it's uh and uh, Luke Gygax wrote wrote a blurb. Chris Metzen, and Chris Metzen is the creative lead at Blizzard, who did Diablo. Uh, Starcraft and Warcraft. I mean, unbelievably accomplished guy. 
but it, that, I mean, it's just really cool to have all these people, you know, I've, cause I've just been kind of hanging with them for this last yeah. period, you know, one way either, you know, virtually or, you know, in emails and all that. It's, it's kind of like the eighties has come back. All right. The, the, you've now heard most of what the other book, the rest of the book, but the book's partly a book about writing. It's partly about a hero's journey, you know, from noob who just got, I was a that guy graduated from SC film school and it's like, Oh, what am I going to do with my life? And uh, that's what happened. Now that that's awesome. And, and I wonder, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about timing and it, it, it is oddly um, serendipitous. If there's, if there's any silver lining to this whole COVID pandemic uh, quarantine stuff is that I, I'm, I'm seeing this um, across the board where folks that haven't connected in forever are reconnecting. Like we're talking over Zoom and doing live streaming. Um, you know, I, I've seen longtime friends get reconnected. And it, it sounds like that's very similar to some of the stuff you've been doing as you've been Absolutely. ramping up the, uh, you know, like, like the, the con to couch stuff, you know, the YouTube series. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it's, 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 it's just great stuff. It's been great. I mean, like I just found, you know, I'm hoping he's going to be on tomorrow. I just found Rick Merwin. Okay. I hadn't talked to Rick Merwin for like 15 years. Tomorrow's Con to Couch show is about Inhumanoids. And he was the only Buzz, I think, wrote, adapted one. And Rick Merwin wrote one. And so he's the only other living person that wrote one of those. And he did G.I. Joe's and Transformers. And I think he even wrote My Little Ponies. Rick could write anything. He even wrote gems. I mean, I think he wrote for everything. <laughs> anyway, awesome. you know, we just we just fallen out and then I, I found some antique email address for him and I said, Well, I'll just write and see whether he responds. And sure enough, he responded. Well and, and that, that was another book series. We did a, a book series called Agents of Fortune. And uh that's another thing I want to talk to him about. Yeah, but yes, this yeah. is very much a period of reconnecting with people and it's partly because of COVID, partly because of the book, and partly because I don't know. Some, at some point, that's what you want to do with your life. You know, I mean, these are some of the most valuable and important people in my life. Why, you know, yeah. why am I not talking to them every week? Yeah, it, it again, it, it feels like it's kind of that that magical 80s time again, where just like yeah. it, it's uh, 2020 feels in a, in a way, um, I mean, I was seven years old, so I don't have that much perspective, but it feels like this is a time that will only exist now. Yes. And yeah. I feel like and it, it's it got, not all bad. As bad as people don't like being locked up. Yeah. There's quite a bit I've enjoyed about God this period. Absolutely. And that reminds me of the tone and spirit of what you're telling in the games master in that, like, you know, that, that four or five year period during the 1980s is a golden age of uh, pop culture that really we haven't seen, we hadn't seen before and might not see again. I mean, if, well, if, if there's one thing that I hope I accomplished in that in that book, it was that, and, and, and it was it was that that it, you know giving a sense of what a golden age is. There's, you have special places, you have amazing collections of people, you have great projects. I mean, it's because I'm trying to figure out how you create them. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just wait around for them to happen. And this could turn into one. Obviously, there's a lot of nasty in the world right now. Sure. Um, you know, and th that just didn't exist then. And I, I was trying to explain to my kids, I mean, the world doesn't have to be like, like it is right now where everybody's yelling at everybody. I mean, it just, it just doesn't have to be like, and it wasn't, you know, and it wasn't like that world didn't have problems, you know, that at that exact moment, the Soviet Union was either going to blow up or it was going to, going to collapse. Yeah. We got lucky, you know, but it could have gone the other way. But anyway, enough of that. But um, yeah, so that's a little bit of what it's about is, Sort of at a personal level and a cultural level, how do you get a golden age? Gotcha. And then, you know, and obviously, I started writing this five years ago, so I wasn't thinking about this period when I was writing. Yeah, it's again, it is. I, I'm just blown away by the the serendipitous nature of it. Um, so, um, so as as we close out, uh, because uh, again, we did want to touch on uh, five faces really quick because yeah, you had some you had some really cool thoughts that um, that I thought were worth exploring. Um, so yeah, so uh, uh, take us there. The floor is yours. Let's talk. Well, about uh, so uh, real quick. Okay, this is sort of one of those bucket list projects like, like if i die and haven't done this i'll you know I, i'll be like some part of me will be going hey i just died without getting that done uh but i would love to see five faces darkness done properly 
you know, cause it was done, you know, it, it, it was written, you know, when things were still good, but it was produced in the period after the movie. And what you have to remember is the movie was considered a disappointment at the time. Right. Nowadays. And you know, 40 years of product later, people don't think that, but at the time that's what they thought. And so the third season, you know, things were fraying between Sunbow and Marvel and, and I, I'm not blaming anybody. You'll not find in the book like zero blame. I try not to say anything bad about anybody because I don't even remember most of that. <laughs> and and there there weren't really villains, but that was a frayed relationship. Uh, you know, the the animation came in crappy. The deadlines got pushed. The budgets got cut. We pretty much knew probably by the time you know we were finishing that season that the toy show era was over. Mm-hmm. I would love to go back and make it a true you know, kind of companion piece to Transformers the movie, because that's how I thought of it. Mm-hmm. I thought of it as a sequel for Transformers the movie because it bridged across. And then what would be really kind of cool is to do, fill in the space. And, oh, I, I won't get into that. But um, ah, yeah, there, there, are, there are things left to be done. Absolutely. And if we went back, cleaned it up, added a couple scenes back in, edited some stuff out, gave it a better continuity, it would be like having a sequel to Transformers the movie and I think if we tightened it and polished it enough, it would be as good. You know, yeah. I, that's what's funny about it. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? So, yeah, you know, I, I, I pitched that to Hasbro. They, they look at me like I'm on drugs. But, I mean, that, that would be my goal. <laughs> yeah, um, no idea. But that would, be, that would be just a cool project. And probably doing the whole thing would be about the price of an episode of another show. And, and I think, yeah, I, I think, you know, you fix the music. I mean, go, you know, get Vince Cola or somebody like that yeah. to do it. I mean, you do it and you say, we're really going to do this like it's a bookend mm-hmm. for Transformers, the movie, not like it's, you know, the, the opening miniseries for, because a lot of the material in that was stuff that, that if not, if it was never in the actual movie script, it was stuff stimulated by it. Very good. I love that. So let's uh let's uh, look let's look forward to the future a little bit because something that happened uh last year it was announced at uh San Diego Comic-Con was the uh, uh War for Cybertron Unicron figure. Right. That, that successfully funded through uh the Haslab uh crowdfunding program and I I remember uh Ron Friedman posting aggressively at the time saying like, you know, if if this thing funds, um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get Flint Dilly and we're going to do something Unicron related. Well, well, yeah, we've been talking about the Ron. Yeah. Ron, Ron and I, back when like you could still go to a restaurant, <laughs> I get together with Ron and we've been trying to figure out what to do. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. cause we want to do something. That was a great experience. The guys at Hasbro are fabulous. You know, uh, you know, I just, uh, spent a lot of time with these guys and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, they're, they're just great guys. And so the whole idea is, is, you know, what can, what Unicron thing can we, we get done? And that may not be separate from figuring out properly how to, how to redo five faces of darkness. Mm-hmm. I don't even care what medium it's in. And the thing <laughs> is, is my favorite object in the transformer universe is, is Unicron's head floating around, you know, yeah. but, I don't know why. It's just that's my favorite thing. And I ordered my Unicron. My wife is horrified by the concept that, that a three foot wide Unicron may be showing up in our house. I said, oh, I think it'll look good in the living room. <laughs> right, right I, next I, I did not get a wife with any patience for that stuff. I understand. You know, you know, if she has her way, Unicron will be like, you know, under the floorboards or something. All right, very good. Well, um, you know, Flint, this is a this has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, indulging me uh, stories about my favorite movie. I really appreciate that. Uh, the uh, The book again is the uh, the Games Master, almost famous in the Geek Eighties. Download it on Audible now. Uh, listen to the audiobook. It's it's really very good. Um, you can, if you want an autographed, signed hardcover copy, you can get that through Rare Bird Books, um, and that uh, that pre order link is available now. Uh, the book drops on July fourteenth, um, and you can pick it up on Amazon as well. And uh, before uh, we part ways for now. Um, can you let folks know where we can connect with you on the internet and the social medias? 
Usually, yeah. Usually, if you want to get hold of me, as you discovered, Facebook's the place to do it. You know, I'm not really a Twitter person. It's, it's, it's just not smart enough to understand it or something. Um, and, I mean, I have a Twitter account, but I never. I, uh, friend me on Facebook, and uh, you, you will see more than you wanted to about uh, the 80s at this moment. You know, until <laughs> July 14th, I'm all 80s all the time. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, every once in a while I talk about something that maybe happened in 91, but mostly sure. we're 80s, yeah. Well, because, yeah, when, when uh, uh, you and I corresponded recently, you know, you had shared that you're basically in promotion mode, you know, for, uh, for the book. And, you know, I, I had some of my friends, other uh, content creators uh, come to me. They're like, oh, my gosh, how would you score that interview? I was like, I asked. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I'm incredibly findable. You know, I mean, it's like, and, and you know, and, and like you can pick any one of the subtopics and, uh, you know, I can blast mouth about that or bring friends or whatever, you know, because we've been doing, yeah, you know, I've been trying to learn this medium with, uh, with the Couch to Con stuff too. And, you yeah. know, so it's, you know, it's, um, I like it. I, I mean, I, I, I find this a really good streamcast, a good, really good medium for it, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so much fun for everybody. You know, we as content creators can can connect with other creators easily, and it's a uh, it, it's just so much fun. Um, so again, uh, uh, Flint, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Uh, before uh, before we part ways, um, anything I may have uh, um, not mentioned, uh, any particular shout outs with regards to promotion of the book, anything that you've got coming up. No, uh, I mean, you've been, you've been like incredibly great about the shout outs for the book. Are the things coming up? I guess the key I would look at is look at the people who did the blurbs in the book. And like, most of them are people I've been talking to about, about some future project. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have a super secret project coming out in, uh, in August. Um, hopefully. Yeah, everything's hopefully, but yeah, it's yeah. a lot of this. I, what I will say, the COVID period's been the most productive period for me, probably since the '80s. It's very, it's been a very parallel period. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Very good. All right. Well, uh, we will leave it there for now because uh, um, I, I know you've got uh, other arrangements. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a busy, busy time. Yeah, yeah. The first thing I got to do is call back Rick Merwin. He called while we were talking. I haven't <laughs> talked to him since. Yeah, you know, I think. Uh, Bill Clinton was president last time I talked to him. So and I was trying to get him on couch time tomorrow. So, um, but also too, I mean, if you want to talk about other stuff, just uh, yeah, I can come back. It's not like I'm going anywhere. Right. We're in- yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have you back on. You know, we can, I, I know I've got a, I know I've got a buddy, uh, Aaron head Moss. He, uh, he runs a GI Joe podcast and, and, you know, I, I, to, like, and, yeah, tell him I love talking about Joe. Nobody ever talks to me about Joe. Yeah. Right. I mean, I always talk about Transformers. I love Transformers, but sure. I, after all, I'm Flint, right? You know, it, of it's course. Like, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about GI Joe. <laughs> Nobody ever asked. The book is you know, the Game Smasher was an episode of Joe I wrote, right? Exactly. I, I and 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 I almost feel like I, I'm letting down some of my fans also because like I, I've got a bunch of buddies that that are super into Joe. I love Joe also. I just happened to be a Transformers guy just a little more than Joe. So I can't overlook my own uh, personal bias there. But but yeah, no, we, we'd love to have you back on and, and talk more and uh, um, maybe even talk a little Buck Rogers. Um, oh, yeah. Well, there's okay. There's a topic we totally missed. And Buck Rogers was like central to this thing. I mean, it's it's like yeah. been this, this weird, you know, uh, he's been this frenemy that's been really around all my life. That's a good way to put it, and I think that's an excellent tease uh, for next time. Uh, but that uh, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for watching and listening and participating. And if you want to listen to my podcast, uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to uh, check out the full show archive, that's available out on SoundCloud. Like, share, rate, and review the show. Let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of in the future. Mike Seibert Radio is produced by Dave Sanders and is powered by Poddex. For Mike Seibert Radio, my name is Mike. And my name is Flint, and we're signing off. And until next time, wash your hands and make good choices. (laughs) Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Mike Seibert Radio Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at Mike Seibert Radio. Email us at MikeSybertRadio at gmail.com. The spelling on that, of course, is S-E-I. 
B-E-R-T. Call into the voicemail hotline at 231-224-MIKE. Once again, that's 231-224-6453. Special thanks to Michael Geisler for our theme music. For more like it, check out ByDoorMusic.com. This has been a Mike Seibert Radio Production.